Hello and welcome to episode 50, that's right, 5-0 of the Building Local Power podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Nick Stumelinger, ILSR's Communications Manager. We have a really interesting podcast for you this week, uh, featuring most of our community-scaled economy team. Today is uh, a frequent topic. We talk about Amazon a lot on this podcast. You can go back to episode six, where we discussed a giant uh, comprehensive report on Amazon, as well as episode 28 of this podcast feed, where we talked about Amazon's acquisition of Whole Foods. But this episode is a little bit different. We're going to be talking about some original research that we've done into a widely underreported phenomenon about Amazon's relationship with uh, local procurement and kind of some of the hidden things that they're doing in our economy. So before we get started, I will introduce our two guests today. Uh, Stacy Mitchell is the frequent host of this very podcast and is the co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance and the director of our independent business work. How's it going, Stacy? Good. Nice to be with you, Nick. And Olivia Lavecchia is a research associate and an excellent writer on all things local economies. So how's it going, Olivia? Hey, Nick. It's good to be here. We have this new report where you guys are kind of investigating something about Amazon that hasn't really been reported on a lot. And there's a lot of implications for um, cities and for school districts and as well as for the broader terms of uh, competition in our economy. So what is this all about? So, you know, there are all of these ways that Amazon's growing size and influence in the consumer market are really drawing increasing scrutiny. And then a lot more quietly, uh, Amazon is also going after this whole other market, which is the public sector. In this report, we focused on one particular way that that's happening, which is this big contract that Amazon was awarded uh, for the purchasing that is done by local governments around the country. Uh, So your city, your town, your county, your school district, all of these kind of local public agencies and jurisdictions. Um, And this contract, It was awarded to Amazon in the winter of 2017, and it has an estimated value of $500 million annually, and it has the potential to go for 11 years. So we're talking about $5.5 billion over the potential term of this contract. So, you know, that kind of alone was enough to make us go, huh, what, what's going on here? And then when we looked at it, we realized that uh, kind of both in the, the process and in the particulars of how this contract works, it deviates from a lot of the norms uh, that have been set up to kind of protect the public interest in ways that local governments do their spending. Really, it brings up a lot of questions about whether this is a good deal for local governments. I think one more thing just to add while we're kind of at the top of talking about this contract is that One of the things that's exciting about it is that it also gives this um, local level angle on Amazon. I think there is a lot of opportunity here for cities and for public officials to uh, use this contract as a way to take a stand against Amazon. Yeah, that strikes me as very important to kind of point out that, um, you know, maybe... You have a neighbor, you have a friend, a family member who likes to buy their books off of Amazon, and that's an individual choice um, that we may have conversations about. But this seems like a very systemic way that um, Amazon is kind of capturing even more dollars um, in a lot of the things that, you know, schools will have buy pencils or that type of thing. So backing up a little bit, so maybe you can delve into what the process for awarding this contract was from U.S. communities um, and kind of what were the things that stuck out to you that were really uh, egregious, I guess. Uh, displays of Amazon's power. 
I think there are uh, a few things that that really stand out on that front. The first one is that, you know, in the past, uh, when U.S. Communities has um, released a request for proposals for contracts like this, they've been in particular areas. Um, So for a while, you know, U.S. Communities had a a contract that was specifically for office supplies. and that was held by Office Depot for a while, and then for a while, actually, by a group of independent office supply dealers around the country. But when that last office supply contract expired, U.S. communities didn't uh, come out and, and solicit a new one. Um, instead, it waited a while, and then uh, it put out a request for proposals for an online marketplace that would cover 10 different product areas. So already what you're looking at, you know, right off the bat there is that there are very few companies that can make an offer on that kind of proposal. Very few companies that specialize in all of these product areas. And it was office supplies, school supplies, uh, kitchen equipment, kind of everything you can think of. The 10th category was miscellaneous, and that was everything else. Um, And so what we saw when we looked at that is that there were companies that had previously been able to uh, compete for this big stream of public sector spending. And now here, just in how this proposal is written, um, they're getting shut out of it. So I want to hit pause on that first um, first section there where you're talking about kind of what the kinds of products that they're looking for. I think it's useful to point out, like you said, there are not very many entities that can offer specialty in all these different areas. You may have like, uh, you might have a local hardware store that can provide some of the maintenance needs for for a city work, uh, city building or a school or something like that. You may have an office supply chain or a local products, um, local product folks that can can give uh, pencils, that can give whiteboard erasers, those types of things. Um, so it kind of sounds a little bit like this was written for a larger entity than what they were. Um, originally dealing with. Is that right? Is that fair to characterize it that way? Well, as Olivia was saying, this was an RFP that when you look at it really seems to be written with one company in mind. Um, you know, when you have an RFP for public procurement uh, and you're going out there looking for companies to bid on supplying local governments with supplies, and, and, and what you really want from an RFP is to create a competitive bidding process where you have lots of companies that are competing to offer those things. In this case, we ended up with a process that really didn't have any meaningful competition because of the way the RFP was written. Um, Essentially, only Amazon really fit uh, into that RFP. In the end, we found that only five companies put together proposals that met met even the minimal requirements of the RFP. And when you look at the scores for those companies, uh, we found that uh, four of those companies got very low scores, and only one of the companies actually got a high score, which was Amazon. And what we found in talking to people who know a lot about public procurement is that you know you want to have a competitive bidding process, and if you only have one company that effectively is bidding, that's not really a competitive RFP. So this is one of the first signs right off the bat that something was fishy and outside of the norm of public procurement with this contract. So that's a really good note on the 
process, and that does seem shady, that raises some eyebrows to me, but I can kind of foresee a little bit of the uh, response to that is, you know, as long as these local entities, these local governments and and, uh, school districts are getting a good deal, as long as they have the lowest price, which a lot of people associate with Amazon, um, then why is that an issue? And and I think your report touches on the fact that, you know, maybe these governments aren't actually getting the best price for these things. We found that this contract deviates in a lot of ways from the standard terms and norms that protect public dollars. Um, Normally in procurement contracts, I mean, if we just step back for a minute, the reason that cities and school districts sign contracts to get their supplies is that by going out and bidding those contracts competitively and by promising, uh, you know, say a five-year contract, or in the case of this contract, uh, it has renewals that could go up to 11 years, um, that the city is going to be able to get the best price. They'll say, here's what we buy the most of, um, here's the RFP, companies will bid, uh, the city is promising all that volume, so they should be getting a volume discount in exchange. And in the case of these joint contracts, uh, which is what this is through U.S. communities where it's being offered to lots of cities, the idea is that you're combining all that volume together nationally and therefore you should get even a lower price. So that's the idea behind these joint purchasing contracts. What we found here is something very different. Amazon didn't actually compete on price to win this uh, contract. Instead of offering a fixed guaranteed price in the contract, what they instead are saying is that they're offering dynamic pricing. And what this means is that when a uh, buyer for a school or a city logs on to the site under this contract, they're going to be paying a fluctuating price. It could be fluctuating day to day, week to week. Um, And Amazon says, well, you're going to get the lowest price because there are lots of sellers on the site and therefore it's like a market and, and it's going to naturally produce the lowest price. We were a little skeptical of that idea simply for the fact that Amazon charges a fee for sellers to be on its site. So they're getting this extra fee tacked onto the top. So how, you know, given that and given Amazon's control of the platform, is that that's not really a market, you know, it's not really something that's going to necessarily produce the lowest price. So we went and asked um, a firm called Op Software, um, a, a guy named Rick Marlette there. He, he has this firm where his job is to track pricing in the office supply sector, and he tracks pricing at you know, Walmart, Staples, Amazon, Amazon Business, lots of independent office supply dealers across the country. And he's doing this on an ongoing basis, and he provides this service. If you're an office supply company, you can get his data, and then you're able to tell if your pricing is competitive. That's what his company does. So we said, can you run a pricing analysis for us? And he used the actual purchasing history for a California school district over a two-week period and found that if they had bought their supplies through this contract through Amazon during that two-week period, they would have paid about 10 to 12% more than they did going through their local supplier. So in fact, not only does this contract have terms that don't protect cities, but there's some evidence that in fact it's going to lead to higher prices. That's pretty stunning. I mean, 10 to 12%, you know, when you're talking about all this volume that a, that a school district goes through, that a local city government goes through, that, you know, it really adds up. And I think um, a really amazing point that you guys make in the report is kind of talking about we've long held and, you know, have had all these 
public political conversations about um, public spending and talking about the ways that you need to protect uh, taxpayer dollars to make sure they're being paid appropriately. And it seems like, you know, if the process is rigged toward Amazon, the price isn't competitive, that these public dollars are just being siphoned to a private company. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's accurate. I mean, I think it's fair to say that this is a contract that really serves Amazon's ambitions and doesn't actually serve the needs of local governments. I mean, the reason, you know, just to add another dimension to this, the reason it's 10 to 12% is there is a, we, you know, sort of it depends on how you count the shipping costs. I mean, this is the other thing we found um, that's quite striking is that for cities that sign on to this contract, it's actually a big step down in terms of delivery. Uh, Amazon, and, and this is a funny thing to say about a company that's known for uh, setting a new standard in terms of how quickly people expect packages to arrive. But in the office sector, you know, there's this whole world of independent office supply dealers, and these are local and regional companies that have been around for decades. They often don't have storefronts, so as a consumer, you wouldn't necessarily know that they're there. But they decades ago started doing next day delivery. So this is a standard thing in their industry is next day delivery. Well, under this contract, Amazon isn't actually offering a guaranteed delivery time. Uh, In order to get two-day delivery, cities have to sign up for Business Prime. Uh, in order to get guaranteed two-day delivery. And so depending on how you account for that cost, that's why we ended up with 10 to 12% being the additional amount that this school district would have spent. But to your point, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is a real risk at a time when, you know, budgets are being tightened. And and in fact, cities have less money in part because of the Amazon's impact on local economies. Uh, You know, we really have to watch those dollars. And so the notion that this is a company that's now coming in to siphon off that spending and doing so in a way that doesn't make the best, most efficient use of those dollars is quite concerning. So there's another part of this report that you delve into that I think is startling and um, deviates from previous precedent um, in the U.S. community's uh, RFPs, and that's the terms and conditions, Uh, the ways that Amazon seems to have uh, kind of rewritten some of these terms and conditions to be less transparent. And Olivia, I was hoping you could maybe delve into that, um, those changes a little bit. So in this contract, one thing to note here is that the way U.S. Communities does these contracts is they run them through uh, a public agency that that functions as what's called the lead agency, so that then other public agencies, local governments around the country uh, can sign on to a contract that has been, the the process has has gone through another public entity. So in this case, that entity was a a school district in Virginia. And in this contract, Amazon, uh, instead of how this would usually work, where where that school district's terms and conditions were adopted, and then every other local government that signs on uh, did the same thing with their terms and conditions, instead of that, Amazon got the school district and U.S. communities to agree to just using Amazon's regular terms and conditions, um, and then also went through and made a lot of changes uh, to the school district's terms and conditions as uh, they're applied in this contract. So as part of this report, uh, through a Freedom of Information Act request, um, we took a look at a lot of the emails that were exchanged between Amazon and this school district as they were kind of hammering out the details of the contract. And uh, there are some pretty amazing emails. There's one that begins... um, 
Good morning, Tony. Attached are Amazon's consolidated red lines to the general terms and conditions. And then in the attachment, you see where Amazon's team of lawyers uh, went through and, and crossed things out, uh, made uh, additions, insertions. Um, and these additions cover a lot of different things. But one of the, the notable ones uh, are the changes that Amazon made to uh, Freedom of Information Act requests and the part of the school district's terms and conditions that uh, say, you know, uh, this is this is a public record and, and people can request this information. In that part of the terms and conditions, Amazon said um, when citizens, uh, anyone, any member of the public makes a request for this information, Amazon has the right to get notified uh, before the local government responds, and Amazon gave itself the power to intercede, um, to say, don't respond, we want this to be exempted or redacted in this way. Um, So it's an example of uh, Amazon stepping in in a way that is uh, really beneficial to Amazon and not to the public, which ties back to a lot of the concerns that we have with this contract in general. Yeah, the it's particularly galling to read this part of the report because you know it makes it sound like they're turning these um, these local public entities into little subsidiaries of Amazon, and you can't talk the way that you want to um, to to get the right uh, transparent records and and for the citizens to be able to have a say in some of these types of things. I think it's very interesting that Amazon is going through line by line. It's it's pretty disturbing. Uh, not at all surprising though. I think if you're a listener to this podcast or follower of any of Amazon's tactics. It seems like this is a pretty consistent play um, to make sure everything is quote unquote, you know, legally sound um, when they're rewriting some of these things. So part of this report is talking about some of the broader implications that this has for Amazon's market power and the kinds of different industries and sectors they're getting into. But we're going to talk about that and go a little bit broader after the break. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Building Local Power podcast. This is the part of a podcast where we usually hear about a mattress company issuing spaceship loans for audiobooks or something like that, but that's not quite how it works here at ILSR. We're a national organization that supports local economies, which means we don't accept national advertising. Please consider making a donation to ILSR. Not only does your support underwrite this podcast, but it also helps us produce all of the research and resources we make available for free on our website, like the one we're discussing today. Please take a minute and go to ILSR.org slash donate, and any amount is welcome and sincerely appreciated. That's ILSR.org slash donate. Thank you so much. And now, back to Stacy and Olivia. Getting into the way that Amazon is targeting this public sector spending, how does that really impact the relationship that local governments and school districts and other kind of public entities have with their uh, local business community? What we found is that Amazon is using this contract and its increasingly cozy relationship with local governments to expand its power as a gatekeeper for other businesses, to really expand its hold as a platform over commerce. 
Um, so in this case, what that has meant is that, you know, as I, I mentioned earlier, a lot of cities, they're buying from regional and local suppliers, at least for some of what they need. And in the office supply and classroom supply sector, that's been true. There are lots of independent office supply dealers uh, across the country. And these are businesses that are, you know, not necessarily super small. I mean, some of the ones that we interviewed, for, for example, uh, one in, in Virginia named Guernsey Office Products, um, has about 250 employees uh, and has been around for, for decades. So these are important businesses in their local economies and in their regions, uh, contributing to the employment base and the tax base of, of communities. So cities often have had relationships with those suppliers for a long time. And what's happening in the case of this contract is that Amazon is saying to local governments, well, you can still buy from those local suppliers because they can become sellers on our platform. And in some cases, the uh, office supply dealers are hearing uh, both from Amazon saying, come on and become a seller if you still want to do business with governments, but they're also hearing from their uh, local governments. Why don't you just join Amazon's platform and we'll buy from you that way? there are so many problems with this. I mean, it means for a local office supply dealer that suddenly you're having to give 15% of your revenue right off the top to Amazon, to one of your biggest competitors. It means that they now control your ability to reach the market. They control how you're uh, how you show up on the platform, the terms by which you can sell things on the platform, um, they can cut you off at any point. I mean, essentially, you're at their at their mercy. Um, and you know, this is a problem that we've been talking about throughout our work with Amazon. Is this notion that this isn't just a big retailer? This is a company that wants to control the underlying infrastructure of the economy and sort of require all of these other businesses to use its platform in order to reach their customers. Incredibly problematic from a competition standpoint. Point. And what we found is that this contract is yet another tool for Amazon to do that, and particularly um, to use local governments as uh, you know in, in a way to, to facilitate that market power even further. Yeah, it seems to me that Amazon is just this ever inflating balloon in a small room that, you know, it wants to be a part of every single transaction in the economy. And, and it wants to push out, you know, it was really jealous of all these independent relationships that these, uh, these office supplies folks and these local folks were having with their own governments. And so it says, but hey, I want to be a part of this, too. I want to be the one that's capturing, you know, a little bit of this. And like you said, like, it wants to be the infrastructure that any of this commerce happens uh, on in our economy. It doesn't want to just kind of um, be a part of it. And I think that that's really notable. So in what way are cities uh, fighting back against this? You know, it seems like this U.S. communities contract is a really good example of ways that cities are subject to this kind of pressure from Amazon, um, from a larger contract, but are all cities a part of this U.S. communities thing? Are there similar things happening? And, you know, maybe if they don't want to be a part of this larger contract, what can they do? I think there are a lot of um, really kind of exciting opportunities for local action around this contract. And I think that is is happening and can happen in a few different ways. Um, The first is 1,500 local governments around the country have already adopted this contract, and more are signing on. Amazon is uh, out selling this contract, pitching it to to local officials. Um, But I I think the first way that uh, cities can, you know, decide not to buy this deal that Amazon is selling is... uh, 
if they have signed onto the contract, to look at what it's getting them. Um, one of the public officials we talked to for this report is uh, the controller of the city of Pittsburgh, um, who Pittsburgh has signed onto the contract, and uh, the city controller, who's kind of the watchdog over city finances, uh, not every city has one, so just so listeners know what a controller does, um, he, he was looking at this contract and saying, um, you know, I'm actually, I'm developing some doubts around this. Um, and since signing onto the contract, uh, Pittsburgh has started an audit of its processes around these group contracts. Um, and, you know, certainly cities, other cities that have signed onto this contract uh, can not use it um, or uh, put a lot of checks on the way that it does use it. Another way that cities can uh, go down a different path with their spending is by adopting local purchasing policies. Um, These are tools that we see in uh, cities and other types of local governments around the country um, that are really about using uh, all of the money that cities and local governments spend also as economic development and also as a way to... um, grow the local economy with that public spending. Um, So one good example here is uh, the city of Phoenix. Um, And one of the reasons that uh, Phoenix policy stands out is that it's about kind of small dollar purchases. So purchases that aren't the kind of big contracts that would go out uh, through in an RFP or a bid process, but just the kind of um, small stuff that city employees might have to buy every day and the kind of stuff that is sort of vulnerable to shifting to Amazon. But Phoenix has this policy that says uh, even for those kind of small procurements, it encourages city employees to uh, go through a database of local companies first. So there are a lot of places that have some kind of local purchasing policy. And we have resources on our website that break down what these different policies look like. Um, But in particular, this Phoenix policy for small dollar purchases is a really useful one when we're talking about city spending shifting to Amazon. One of the other policies that you uncovered, Olivia, was this one from Virginia Commonwealth University, which I thought was so interesting. I mean, this is a a public university. Can you talk a little bit about what that one does? Yeah. So uh, Virginia Commonwealth University, in its purchasing policy, it says... um, While not expressly prohibited, departments that order through Amazon uh, must take into account the negative impacts that the purchases have on the university. The policy goes on to say that those impacts include that, you know, the university has has an interest in supporting competition, and uh, it talks about some of the price implications for the university buying on Amazon. So that's another example of how, uh, you know, cities can build up the benefits of purchasing locally, and then they can also institute checks like this that kind of explicitly call out purchasing on Amazon isn't in our best interest or, or the, the public interest. Yeah. And something that I think, you know, comes through in your report and comes through in a, a lot of the discussion on this uh, local procurement question is that uh, maybe folks are kind of looking at Amazon and they look at it as, you know, their their role as a consumer to, of this of, or not of this company. And really, they can feel kind of helpless because it is a huge entity and just them deciding not to buy their your, their books or whatever it is off of Amazon doesn't make that big of a difference. But there is a scale to which a community, a uh, local government, a school district, a university, like you said, can really 
hurt Amazon by kind of coming out against it in this way. And I think that that's a really useful point to maybe give our listeners some hope in saying, you know, if you convince your community to sign on to a local procurement policy, or if you even just give them the options and say, you know, Amazon does this X, Y, Z to your tax base, and they, they kill all these local jobs, and it's not good for our community, then it's a really useful and tangible way for for citizens to kind of get involved and say, we don't want this giant um, monopoly monster in our in our community it's so true and one of the things uh listeners might have heard us talk about before when we've talked about amazon is the way that there's you know for all of its uh size and power amazon is still kind of remarkably invisible you know unlike walmart we don't see it moving into physical spaces in our communities and i think there can be this sense of you know kind of powerlessness. What do you do when Amazon doesn't have a a store in your community that you can go to? Or um, how do you kind of take action to to start to um, check this company's power? And I think when we're talking about city spending, and and in particular, this uh, new contract that is going to shift even more of that spending onto Amazon, um, it offers ways for citizens to talk to their local officials about this company, and it offers local officials something to do. And along with our report, um, which, you know, I, for a report, I think it's pretty good reading um, and, and would urge listeners to check it out. Um, but we also have released uh, an action sheet that breaks down, um, here are some steps people can take, here are some places to start, and uh, that's up on our website too. Yes, I encourage everyone to click on the eminently readable uh, report on Amazon and local procurement as well as the action sheet. It's something very easy. You can print out, you can uh, bring everywhere, you can tack on uh, church doors like Martin Luther, you can just throw them in the street. We don't encourage littering, but do that, please. Uh, Just, you know, all these different options, you know, however you want to get the word out. Um, So as we turn to the end of the show... I apologize I'm springing this on the two of you, but I think this would be useful to kind of clarify and bring wider this conversation on Monopoly. What is the most galling example of Monopoly power that you can think of uh, within the last uh, couple weeks? It could be a piece that you uh, you read that was really interesting that uh, kind of brought something to light. Um, it could be... Um, certain companies uh, really tone deaf way to to you know announce a new thing um, in the economy that you know just as a very blatant demonstration of their monopoly power so what what do you think my partner was flying somewhere yesterday and uh his flight was just a mess um the airline had really the airline delayed it a bunch and then uh he couldn't switch to a different airline because there wasn't an option that really worked flying from our small city here in Portland, Maine, and on and on. Everyone has heard one of those airline kind of horror stories. And it just reminded me of uh, kind of just the ripple effects of, you know, not having a better choice to not fly with this airline that has given you a hard time in the past or uh, the kind of just indignities that can come from uh, living in an economy where they're aren't a lot of good choices for things that you need. I'm going to end up giving an an Amazon example, (laughs) which I know we've been talking about this whole show, but it's what came to mind, I think partly because I was also reflecting on uh, inspired by Olivia's answer, thinking about Maine and sort of what we're seeing here. You know, one of the consequences of Amazon buying Whole Foods is that Amazon 
as now really squeezing out local suppliers. And just to tell a little bit of history about what happened in Portland, Maine, uh, Whole Foods opened probably about eight years or so ago here. And when they came in, they knocked out one local uh, public market that sold a lot of local foods. And then they bought the independent natural natural food store and closed it uh, when they when they bought it. And so when Whole Foods came in, they did a lot around, we're going to carry all these local suppliers and we're going to be great for farmers and so on. To some degree, I mean, they did to a certain degree. It was also a little bit of wallpaper in that, you know, there were ways in which uh, they sort of featured local suppliers, but because of the pricing structure, they often priced those products quite high, higher than they really should have been priced, and then sold their, you know, 365 Whole Foods brand stuff at a lower price point. And so there was a way in which they used local suppliers almost as a marketing thing, but what people really ended up buying was Amazon, or excuse me, Whole Foods is own uh, brand products. But that was even better than what we're now seeing with this sort of further monopolization, if I can put it that way, in terms of Amazon's role in the food system, which is that they are are now offering discounts to Prime members, and it's been uncovered that those discounts are being entirely paid for by suppliers. So there's this squeeze on suppliers. They've also gotten rid of all of the buyers that worked with local producers. So they're doing more and more of their sourcing uh, nationally. And so, you know, it's really, I think, a good example of something that we've talked about before on this show, which is that, you know, there's a lot of passion for having a local and regional food system and, and you know, sort of re- reviving our food production locally. And a lot of people really want to eat that way and really believe in that as an, as an economic tool. But if we don't have a retail sector where there's diversity and where there are lots of locally owned retail stores to sell those products then we don't really have a local food system. And so it really speaks to why consolidation and retail is such a big deal and why we should be concerned about it. And by the way, for anyone who wants to know more about what Amazon is doing uh, with Whole Foods and suppliers, there's a great story in The New Food Economy, uh, which is an online uh, magazine about the food system that's fairly new and really worth checking out if you haven't. Great. And I will give the example of an excellent piece that I found in Vice. You know, we're just wrapping up uh, 4th of July season here, and it's called These 11 Companies Control Everything About the 4th of July, and it's by Claire Kellaway of the Open Markets Institute. And in it, um, she goes and details um, the, the huge percentages of, of beer and hot dogs and chips that are owned by these major companies. And I think it's just a really useful way to pull out and say, you know, these things that we think about as like, so American, like competition and a wonderful open marketplace, you know, uh, we're talking about the 4th of July. We're not really talking about any of those things. We're talking about uh, AB InBev, uh, Miller Coors. We're talking about um, uh, Tyson and all these giant uh, monopolies that I think we all interact with on a daily basis, but it's useful to kind of pull back the curtain a little bit and, and say, you know, these are things that uh, not so good for the economy in, in variety of ways. I'm glad that you had such cogent, amazing answers to this question I just decided to spring on you. And uh, thank you so much to both of you for being here and discussing this new report. This was really fascinating. Thanks, Nick. It was great to have this conversation. Thanks, Nick. Great to be here. 
Thank you so much to everyone else for tuning into this episode of the Building Local Power podcast, number 50, from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. You can find links to everything we discussed today by going to our website, ilsr.org, and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our many newsletters and connect with us on social media. You can help us out with a gift that helps us produce this very podcast, get us great guests, and produce original research on the ways that monopolies are impacting the economy. Once again, please help us out by rating this podcast and sharing it with your friends on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This show is produced by Lisa Gonzalez and me, Nick Stumelanger. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunction Al. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Nick Stumelanger, and I hope you'll join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power. Music